This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the fight over Vancouver's density plan. Now, are you following this one now? These six homes that could be allowed on a single-family lot. Six homes on one lot. So you're talking townhouses, hey, little small condo units there on a single-family zone lot. How would you feel about that now if you live in a single-family zone neighborhood, the detached house, if you're that fortunate? And your neighbor suddenly is going to tear down the house next door and put up a sixplex. This is going to be the subject of uh, a very critical public hearing here coming up next week. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Bill Thielman, former Vancouver City Council candidate, housing advocate in the city. Hey, Bill, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Okay, six, six homes on one lot. I actually really loved the headline in the Vancouver Sun, the op-ed on this one by Carol Volkart. Surprise, you have six new na- neighbors all without a place to park. Bill, what do you think about this idea? Well, the welcome wagon's going to be worn out by the end of this process, Mike, i got to tell you. And if, we're, if we could still use letter grades, I think I'd give City Hall an F on this one. Oh. Look, look, there are, get this, I, I want to repeat this number. There are 60,000 lots in Vancouver affected by this policy. Six zero 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 sixty thousand. So basically, almost all of the houses south of Sixteenth Avenue, and if it goes ahead, which it will, I'm quite sure, uh, based on the council, then it'll uh, later be applied el- almost everywhere else. So what we're talking about is one of the biggest redevelopment and changes to in the city's entire history here, not just a small little bureaucratic uh, thing. So that hearing on September 14th, if people are concerned about any of this, they should try and sign up to be heard or send their comments to council. But um, and in fact, you said six units, which is right, but it could be as many as eight if it's market rentals. So, oh. so it's you had suddenly you have eight new neighbor, not just eight new neighbors, eight new units next to you, maybe sixteen new neighbors, maybe eighteen, twenty new neighbors. So, um, I think we all know that we need this is this is to aimed at the so-called missing middle housing, and right. and sure. I think almost everybody recognizes that we need to do more things on this, but. Does anybody in the city know? Did did anybody in the city get a notice of this hearing or uh, anything else about it? The answer is no, they didn't. Uh, The hearing starts at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday, so lots of accessibility for for people who actually uh, work for a living and and can't get there. So there's just all sorts of problems with this. But um, as you can imagine and your listeners can imagine, Mike, if you put... Um, it could be as uh, yeah, it could be as little as five or four units, but six is kind of the average on an average size lot. Mm-hmm. You do that 
what happens to the water system? What happens to the sewer system? What about our schools and parks? What's the impact wow. of all this? And so you might think, well, this sounds like it might work. It's Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not. Let's do a pilot program. Nope. There's no pilot program at all. They're just going to go straight into it. So this is, uh, uh, and I think this is a sleeper issue that people don't understand, is how absolutely um, uh, massive the change could be wow. to the city of Vancouver. And lastly, who, who helped uh, create this plan? Well, it was mostly developers who are going to be swooping in on this and uh, and making a, a tidy profit off it all. But we haven't got the answers to these questions that are very important to residents of okay. Vancouver. I think you raise a lot of really good points, and I agree with you that that sep- September 14th public hearing scheduled next week, I think, is crucial on this. And for people who are interested in it, I encourage you to... To, to get up to speed on it, maybe you'd think about attending that that hearing. There was a city council report that was uh, generated by city staff on July 25th, and that report is very interesting reading. I think that's kind of flown under the radar to an extent as well, because it highlights some of the challenges that you just pointed out. The lack of parking, the strain on infrastructure, the higher land values that will result as you upzone some of these lots, Tree, tree loss. This is something I hadn't thought about, but when you densify like that, you cut down a bunch of local neighborhood trees and the tree canopy? Yeah, well, who, who needs trees in a climate crisis anyway, Mike? You know, I mean, it's just, it just boggles the imagination. And, and anybody who lives in Vancouver, if you've tried to get a tree cut down in the past, it, it's quite a process. And we've had cases of homeowners illegally cutting, cutting down trees or poisoning trees and then getting ended up in court and fined and jailed or whatever. Uh, now we're talking about, them, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to build six or eight townhouses here on a single lot. So, we, you know, guess what's going to happen to the trees? It's, it's just, it's the opposite direction that uh, uh, compared to heat domes and, and all of the problems we're seeing, uh, forest fires, etc. We need more trees to, to basically take the pollution out of the air. Okay. Let me play a clip here for you from uh, Vancouver housing advocate Ian Cromwell, and he is a big supporter of this plan, and he has heard some of the complaints and the concerns, and he says, look, don't overthink this, that some of the some of the concerns right now will actually be overblown, and it won't come to pass, and actually this will all be just fine, and people are going to love it. <clears throat> Have a listen here, Ian Cromwell, then I'll get your thoughts. I'm sure there are going to be some people who will who will only see the downsides to a, a denser and healthier city. But I think there are a lot of people who are going to welcome having more people when they walk down the street. Okay, we walk down the street and you see lots more people now living in your hood. This will actually be great and people will love it. Bill, <laughs> tell me well, what you th- you think that could be well, true. It's- kind of an apple pie and motherhood statement. Yes, and I said at the beginning, I think we all recognize that we need more density, but it has to be smart density. It has to be controlled density. It can't just be willy-nilly. That's kind of like saying, well, I'm going to chop down the apple tree in your backyard, but I'm going to make apple pie with the apples, so it'll all be fine. I don't think so, Ian. I think that there's huge problems with this, and I am not somebody who says, oh, uh, it's developed by developers and city hall staff, and and the city council is going to pass it in a hurry. What could go uh, wrong? I mean, okay. really. All right. Lots of phone calls. Star 9898 is the number to call in your cell. Richard in Vancouver. Hi, Richard. Go ahead. Dirty deeds done dirt cheap. That's what's going on here, right here in Vancouver. Um, I, I'm a big, um, I'm not a proponent of these citywide rezonings, and that's why we got rid of the previous council when they basically crammed down duplexes on uh, single-family lots. Anyways, 
Um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens here, whether, you know, our new council is going to be the checks and balances for the development community and the planning department, a.k.a. Department of Densification, or whether they're just going to rubber stamp this and cram so, it. Ri- okay, so Richard, let me ask you this. So do you live in one of these neighborhoods that would be impacted by this? Yes, I do. Yeah, okay, so what would you? What would be your reaction if, some, you know, your next-door neighbor or someone across the street, what would you think if a sixplex oh, went up there or an eightplex? It's going to create chaos because I, yeah. I live in a little crescent with one-and-a-half parking spots in front of my house. And, you know, like having something like this done, it's basically junior apartment zoning. That's what they're imposing on the city right now. And, you know, instead of having community-based planning processes and everything, we've abandoned all this. It's it's basically the development community running the city. And okay. whether this, this new council wants to be part of that, you're going to get thrown out too in the end. All right, Richard, thank you for that. Well, I don't know. If you take a look at some of the opinion polling on it, Bill, for your thoughts, it indicates that there's support for this, that people want more housing supply. Bill, well, there was your a thoughts? Survey that, there was a survey, Mike, that the city did, which is kind of self-selecting, but we haven't seen any what I would call proper citywide polling going on, so I don't know. But the thing is, uh, you know, the conversation that you and I are having is not one that most Vancouverites have heard yet. I mean, that's the yeah. problem that I have. There wasn't a notice from City Hall to every home in every area that might be affected by this saying, hey, you might want to think about this, and our report is here. That None of, the, none of this has happened. It's all being done in the dark. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Richard made some good points, but why what happens if you live on a block and there's a land assembly thing by developers and all of a sudden every other house except yours or most of the houses are bought up and going to be demolished for uh, six or eight story mini apartment buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it's just and then what happens to the land value, is it, which you mentioned before? Brad and Ann Moore. Hi, Brad. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Um, I think that the Crown needs to uh, use some of their land and build a bunch of townhouses and go into the rental business. Yeah, well, there is actually a lot of thought about using crown land or government-owned land, city-owned land, provincially-owned land, federal land to build housing. Bill, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, I, I think Brad is right. What we have to do, Mike, like the, the magnitude of the issue, uh, we don't have a housing crisis. We have an affordability crisis here. If you've got $2 million bucks in your pocket, you don't have a, a housing crisis here in Vancouver. You've got opportunities. But it's what we're going to have to do is find ways to build far more housing and a lot more rental, a lot more co-op housing, uh, alternative types of housing all over the city if we're going to keep the city remotely affordable because right now it isn't and so saying we're going to throw six and eight multiplex units all over the place that's not going to potentially that could make everything even more expensive it's certainly not going to say uh create dirt cheap uh, affordable market uh, housing for people who have an income average income in in vancouver around eighty two thousand. what about what about the law of supply and demand you build more stuff the price is supposed to go down well, has it worked so far? <laughs> you know, oh, we're not building enough. That's prices why prices got up and up. We get the highest rent, right? the highest housing prices, and we keep building more and more units. And it's- yeah, Br- Brad, you, Brad, you wanted to say something. Go ahead. I, I did. Um, yeah. I, I think that the the, the 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 crown can can take control of all of it. No contractors. They sub out the uh, the work, and um, the rentals are all done through through the government. And that okay. keeps all of the private sector out of it, and then uh, that sheds all the responsibility off uh, off all of the other people. And the crown has to take the full onus of uh, rentals and stuff. Okay, and Thank- plus it's a revenue stream for them. Thank you, Brad. Rick and Delta. Hi, Rick. What do you think? Yeah, my concern is uh, 
multi multi. Uh, you know, first off, will these six homes be individually titled and serviced? Will they be strata titled? If they strata title them, they have to have a strata corporation. Uh, all corporations in Canada have to file with the CRA. Um, there's a lot of unanswered questions. The other thing is, you know. Um, what about, you know, what we'll see is developers buying these up and turning them into expensive rental properties. So people that want to own will still be shut out. And the, the yeah. big thing, as Bill said, is all about affordability. I'll give you a quick example. They rezoned two lots in the neighborhood I live in in North Delta. They built six houses with coach houses. They talk about affordability. Those houses came to the market at $2.2 million. When you add property transfer tax, GST, they come in at $2,350,000 in a neighborhood of 60-year-old homes. Like, ridiculous. The other thing I wanted to mention here as well is the bigger picture is what the NDP government have done, changing the Municipal Act, where local communities have no say over anything anymore. Thank you for thank you for the call. Thank you for the call. I hate to step on you there, running out of time. Bill, you got thirty seconds here to sum up. Yeah, I just hope everyone will take the opportunity to go to Vancouver.ca and, and look for this public hearing on September fourteenth. You can send comments to the whole council. Uh, you can request to speak. Uh, you can attend and speak. All 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 those things need to happen. But you know, we're we're gonna we've got a situation where a council is going to make a fundamental, massive change to the city without proper consultation of the public, and then see what the results are and the results we can already predict are going to be very problematic. Okay, we're going to follow this one closely going forward. Bill, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. We don't have basic infrastructure that every Canadian takes for granted. So I'm tired. I've been tired for a long time for asking for infrastructure, and now I'm angry. Okay, that's the voice there of Carolyn Cochran, the Premier of the Northwest Territories. They've been through a hellacious wildfire season, and I'm very pleased to welcome to the Premier to the show right now, Northwest Territories Premier Carolyn Cochran. Thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it, Premier, a lot, and I I definitely want to get into your concerns around infrastructure in in the north, and I I know you were so passionate in your comments on this recently. Let me ask you first, though, about the situation on on the ground uh, in Northwest Territories. The evacuation order for the city of Yellowknife, that's lifted today, is that correct? Yeah, the city of Yellowknife is lifted today. It'll be going into an evacuation alert, so people are returning today at uh, the border will be open at another half an hour. However, uh, we still have uh, other communities that are still at huge risk for wildfire, and they'll still remain evacuated until it's safe to return home. Okay, it's, it's great to hear that people will be able to return home. How do you anticipate that is going to go? How many people are returning back to Yellowknife today, do you think? Well, we're expecting five to 6,000 people that will be, or cars that will be driving into the Northwest Territories. We'll also be uh, sending up uh, charters into the territories for people that don't have cars. So we're expecting quite an influx over the next few days of people returning on our one road into the territory. Yeah, what, what has this been like now for people who have been out of their homes for this period of time and, and the wildfire threat so dire has it been? What has it been like for, for the people in the Northwest Territories, would you say? I would say it's been hard for everyone, uh, anyone that lives in the capital, including myself, have been evacuated. 
Uh, it's always tough to leave your home. It's tough to leave all your belongings, not knowing if you're going to have a home to go back to. Being relocated with only a few things on your back, it's been, it's been tough for people. Yeah, and when you talk about that single road going going into the capital, I mean, I want to ask you about that. Like, the plan here to, to evacuate p- people, given that the fire has now been held, and thankfully we've not seen the fire enter, enter the city, looking back now, was it, do you, th- you still believe it was the right thing to do to evacuate the whole city? I believe that whenever there's a risk to people's right lives, then any government, municipal, territorial, indigenous government, federal, have an obligation to make sure that their residents are safe whether that be evacuation or stand in place. In this point, uh, in this case, because the fire was coming from so many sides, I do believe the evacuation was the right thing to do. Yeah, can you, uh, what is the status of the fire now? I mean, it's it's officially called held, is that correct? That's true, it's officially called held. It's not in control. It means that, uh, that it has progressed, that we're able to maintain it as it is, but we're expecting this fire to go throughout the season and uh, possibility of popping up again in the spring. Speaking to Carolyn Cochran, Premier of the Northwest Territories, let's talk a little bit about the the logistics of this evacuation. And you mentioned the the single road there as being a big problem, a big barrier. Can you describe it for people who are unfamiliar with, with Yellowknife? I've been there. I had a great time there in my visit. Can you tell me a little bit about that, you know, the challenges with getting that many people out of that, that city and now getting them back in? Well, I sit down in my evacuation suite in, in Edmonton and I look outside my window and I see uh, four-lane highways going through. And, and it's not even a major, it's just a road around Edmonton. We don't have such luxury. We have one road and one single lane in those roads. So imagine, uh, you know, 6,000 vehicles driving down a one road or one lane highway. Uh, there was a huge potential for accidents, et cetera. Luckily, we never had any, but it's not acceptable. We need, we deserve more. Right. And you've been very outspoken on this point in recent days. And, and we heard, the listeners heard in that clip how passionate you were on this. Can you talk a little bit about like how long you've been, you've been working to bring these improvements to Canada's north, particularly in Northwest Territories? Uh, myself, it's it's decades of premiers before me. We've been working yeah. on our Mackenzie Valley Highway for 50 years, 50 years to build a highway through. And I know that we have an obligation too as a territorial government. But when we're funded per capita per person, and we only have 45,000 people with 33 communities, our funding is very limited. So there's been lots of commitments by the federal government, by Canada to help us with our infrastructure. And um, it's been really slow coming. We don't have time to wait. This uh, forest fires that uh, ravaged through the NWT this year really showed the extreme. Yellowknife was lucky we had one road. We have 22 communities that have zero permanent road. They're lucky if they have a winter road to get to. And that's melting quickly as well because of permafrost. Yeah, and when you when you describe that situation and you have such a, it's kind of a sparse population that is distributed over many different communities, as you described, would it not be, for people listening, thinking, well, is it not reasonable to expect there there would obviously not be like multi-lane highways going through there? What would you, what would you say to that? I would say that the Northwest Territories, people in the North have lived there for a long time. Like I said, we're not asking for extra. People have to realize, too, that uh, originally people in the North were relocated there. 
they were actually uprooted from the south and taken to the north against their will for many people they made false promises right now with the threats the arctic sea opening up uh, the need for arctic sovereignty is huge we need people to be on that land if we want to protect canada and uh, i think a lot of people were really afraid during this wildfire season and and people are talking about moving so do you want an empty sparse land when when there's ships mm. right on the edge of Canada. Those are questions Canadians need to ask. Okay, those are really interesting points, especially when you consider, you talked about melting permafrost and, and the breaking up of Arctic sea ice, making opening up some navigable water channels there. Can you expand a little bit on that? Like when you talk about Canada's sovereignty there in the north, how how would your this, the infrastructure issue, how does that affect that specifically? Well, if Canada wants to protect the North and protect Canada, then we're talking about dual use infrastructure, such as road systems. It's really hard to get to, you can't get to rates from the border of the NWT to the to the northern border, from the southern border to the northern border in one uh, highway within the Northwest Territories. You have to go around through BC and into the Yukon and come back over uh, airport systems as well. Um, I know that that Canada's working with the territories on the Inuvik airport, but we have many airports within communities that uh, aren't adequate. So if there is a threat to the north, um, then I think Canada has an obligation to make sure that we're protected there, that we can be the first line of defense if necessary. So we're talking roads, we're talking ports, we're talking communications, we're talking energy sources that have been neglected in the north for many, many decades. Speaking to Carolyn Cochran, Premier of the Northwest Territories, I know that you have, have made this pitch personally to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. What kind of reaction have, have you, or assurances have you received personally from him, and are you satisfied with what you've heard from him? Well, the Prime Minister first, uh, we first talked about the wildfires. We talked about the need to support people. He did promise that he would uh, 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 alleviate all of the requirements for income assistance so that people could actually have an income because people have been dislocated for quite a while now. Um, we talked about the needs of the North and the long-term infrastructure that's needed. He did make a commitment that he would be looking at redundancy with our, our communication systems because when Hay River burnt, uh, all communications went down and it was horrifying not being able to reach the, the leadership there. Um, he talked about the road systems and he did make a commitment um, that he would be looking at better support for the infrastructure needs in the north going forward. Did that reassure you? I always get more reassured. Uh, it reassured me that it showed that he acknowledged it. A lot of times within politics, you get it, I hear you, but you don't get any commitment. So it was uh, reassuring that he yeah. did make a commitment. However, um, I'm still waiting to see the check as they come forward. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. How about uh, how about putting some cash on the on the table here for sure? Uh, speaking of that, that the communications infrastructure there, and you you mentioned that one particular fire that was very threatening, and how the communications infrastructure there, how quickly did that go down, and why did it go down? It went down because we have one fiber link going into the Northwoods Territories that area, and uh, the fire actually burnt it. Uh, it was it was horrifying. When I got the call from the mayor who was at the airport and said, Premier, we need the Herx in now. Uh, I can see the fire from where I am. That was, it, it'll live with me forever. 
Um, we called in the Hercs, we got them there, and then the communications went down, and I didn't know if the Turks were there, if the people were out. Thank goodness uh, one of the leaders got access to a Starling, and once that happened, again, it was it was really breaking up, but he called me about 11.30 and said, Premier, the last plane's gone, the, the people that want to get out are gone, and then he I lost contact with him again. So, uh, um, again, uh, not knowing knowing that people are, their lives are at risk and communications going down and not knowing if our supports were adequate was an experience I never want to live again. Premier, final question for you. You've been very generous with your time on such a busy day. You mentioned that you are evacuated from Yellowknife yourself. You're in Edmonton. Are you heading home today? I'm not heading home today. As I said, we have one lane traffic. There's, uh, we're expecting five to 6,000 vehicles to be on that road. So, uh, those that can, we're asking to hold off uh, for a day or two so that uh, those that need to get home now immediately will be on that road and then hopefully it'll slow down a bit uh, for the rest of us. Thank you for your time today and I hope we have a, a safe remainder of this uh, fire season. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you very much and thank you for bringing attention to the needs of the North. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, here we go now with the flow of contraband goods into BC prisons. Now, check this one out. Kent Institution in Agassiz, $273,000 worth of smuggled items discovered at this jail. This is the only maximum security jail in BC. Hundreds of thousands of smuggled items discovered in there. Drugs, booze steroids, cell phones, weapons, all smuggled into a maximum security jail. How did the prisoners pull this off? How easy is it to smuggle drugs and weapons and cell phones into a maximum security jail? I've got former corrections officer Alan Mullen standing by. He worked at Kent Institution for many, many years. Have a listen to this here first. Now, this... This one is the the amazing story about how this contraband gets smuggled into jail. Have a listen to this report about the passenger pigeon carrying meth into a jail. Listen to this. In my career, I've been around for almost 13 years, and I have never seen a, a live bird fly a package into any institution or heard of that. It happened December 29th, says John Randall. In the courtyard, an outdoor area within the confines of the prison walls, officers spotted a pigeon and a package it was carrying. It was a small um, fabric, uh, almost like a backpack, essentially, tied to the bird. Um, and inside that uh, pack was, was the, the drugs. The bird was let go. Inside its package, set to be 30 grams of crystal meth. Okay, a pigeon with a backpack containing crystal meth. Uh, these are just, that's just one method 
of getting drugs into a jail. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Alan Mullen, former corrections officer at Kent Institution. Alan, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Happy to be back on the show. Thanks a lot for doing it. Have you ever seen that one before, a pigeon smuggling in drugs to a jail? No, that's that's a new one even for me. Uh, any any sort of a pigeon or even a drone, uh, I didn't experience back in my day, but that's uh, that's a whole new level there. Yeah, but the drones are happening now, too. This has been reported in British Columbia as well, dropping weapons and drugs into a prison yard by drone. That's happening. It It is happening, yeah, and it's happening, I think, more and more, um, certainly out, out in the Agassiz area. Uh, I do know UCO, the, the Union of uh, Canadian Correctional Officers, are actually trying to seek permission to be able to shoot them down. They, they currently can't do oh, that. But wow. it's it, it's it's turning into sort of a serious situation. I mean, all, I mean, what if a what if a drone dropped in, you know, live ammunition or, or you know, a small firearm for for that matter into, a, a, you know, an exercise yard where inmates are, are outside? I mean, that, oh. that can have absolute devastating effects for for the safety and security of the institution. No kidding. That's a nightmare scenario there for sure. Let's talk a little bit about Kent Institution, maximum security prison here in British Columbia. How long did you work there? Uh, just over 10 years. Wow. That's a, that's a long time. And so what was it like there? What was it, what's it like to work inside a maximum security prison? I mean, the the max is is so much different than than a medium security uh, institution. It's it's really very well controlled with regards to inmate movement. Um, it's very it's very controlled with regards to different populations of inmates. And it's important to remember too, you know, Kent houses inmates from across the country, and you know, ninety five percent of the inmates in there aren't aren't in there for stealing candy bars. I mean, we're talking about some pretty, uh, you know, heinous crimes. Uh, of one sort or another, so it's 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 a very interesting place to work. It's it's an incredibly negative uh, environment, just obviously based on what it is. Uh, you you go to work every day, and you know invariably you're going to be getting in some sort of a physical altercation. There's firearms around. Thank thank thankfully they're controlled by the officers, um, but it's you know it's very well controlled with with barriers and and you know sort of hard security measures. So uh, it's an interesting place to work, to say the least. Let's talk, Alan, about this latest seizure of contraband at Kent Institution here. So $287,000 worth of smuggled items found inside the prison walls. So we're talking drugs, booze, steroids, cell phones being smuggled into the jail. When you take a look at the scale of that, $287,000 worth of stuff found in one sweep of of the jail. What do you think of that as a guy who worked there for 10 years? I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, that's that's a, a an extraordinary amount. I mean, you're always, always, always going to have, you know, small amounts of drugs. Um, you're always going to have, you know, sort of weapons. I mean, there's weapons all over that institution, and there always will be, and that's the same across every institution. But when I look at $287,000, that's incredibly problematic because that's not just coming then from visitors or inmates returning from you know a cancelled or a revoked statutory release which is which is the main sort of uh area that they that they they get contraband into institutions is usually visitors or inmates returning from outside appointments or or revoked stat release but that's that's an incredible amount uh of 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 money to have been seized and the biggest one again is the smartphones like that is yeah. the most problematic one for me yeah and why why is that because it uh when inmates are going out for outside appointments 
they're only told on the morning of the, you know, the appointment, whether it's a doctor's appointment, unless it's in uh, outside court, then they, then they know ahead of time. But if they have the ability to let people on the outside know, that puts not only the general public in, in, in jeopardy and in, in, you know, a serious safety concern, but, you know, the officers that are escorting, uh, you know, the, the inmate to this outside appointment, if they have the ability to let people know, that's the biggest problem with smartphones. But the other problem with smartphones is, they have the ability to conduct their business from their cell. They can be they can be involved in you know the drug trade, the gang activities. Obviously, the Lower Mainland is having a big gang problem right now. Uh, they can they can literally pull the strings for sitting from their cell at Kent Institution if they have access to to a cell phone. Uh, it's it's really really problematic, and it's it's always been one of the main issues is is uh, you know phones inside of an institution. Yeah. How, what is the most common method used to smuggle contraband into a prison? I mean, people remember the old, you know, the visitor comes with a, a file in the in the cake. I mean, is it is it often visitors that try to smuggle stuff in, or how, how does stuff get into a prison typically? Yeah, it's. I mean, it does happen with visitors. There, there is, you know, CSC does use ion scanners, detector drug dogs. Um, you know, there there is things what in are, place. What are, ion, what are ion scanners? Because I was taking a look at the release here from the Correctional Service of Canada, saying that they're trying to ramp up these ion scanners. What what is that? Yeah, so ion scanners are, you know, you'll see them used at the airport as well, where where it's a little swab and and you can swab people's keys, their wallet, their their person, and then uh, the little piece of fabric gets put into the ion scanner oh, machine, and it, and right. it will tell you if there, if it detects cocaine or methamphetamines or or whatever the case. So it's it's a it's a a tool that's utilized to you know if somebody has been in contact with with drugs. Um, then that will it should yeah. catch it. Uh, same thing with the drug dog. But you know, a lot of times it comes in through admissions and discharge, where mm. you know inmates have ordered something or they're being sent something from their family, whether it's a TV or a new pair of shoes or whatever the case. I mean, I've seen some pretty, you know, crazy stuff where where they've they've hidden them in you know fake uh, shoes or a fake TV. Uh, I know uh-huh. in the United States, uh, they've they've gone to these clear TVs so you can see into the TV. Um, it, it, it's pretty uh-huh. ingenious the way it comes in. And then the other one is uh, inmates, um, you know, putting the, the, the items in their body. So they, they know mm. they're getting out on statutory release. They they have no intention of staying out. They'll stay out for, you know, four, five, six days and then they'll get revoked. Well, in that time, they've already made a deal on the inside that they're going to bring back whatever it might be, smartphones, uh, steroids, whatever the case. Um, and, you know, not not to gross your listeners out, but yeah. I've seen a, a, an enormous amount of, of stuff come out of, of inmates. Um, <laughs> that's that's another way that that it can happen. And the only way of catching that is. If there's security intelligence information that comes, uh, you know, to CSE, then they can do what, you know, the reasonable grounds to believe and they can actually do, uh, you know, a dry cell and that kind of stuff. But they they do like they do typically do a cavity search if a prisoner returns to jail. So when when a prisoner returns from the outside, whether it's an outside appointment or revocation of statutory release, they get strip searched. But if if there's reason to believe that they have something you know ingested or otherwise inside them uh, they get put, put on what's called a, a, the warden can authorize a, a, a dry cell so they get put into a cell 
with the door wide open with two correctional officers sitting there watching them and there's no running water uh, in the toilet and and essentially when they use the bathroom the the contraband is seized oh okay alan what about the potential for an inside job and we've seen this before where prison staff might be involved here in smuggling items into a jail. This has happened before in Canada. It's happened in BC. Did you ever see any of that when you were at Kent? Abs- absolutely. So I was a, a correctional manager, which basically means um, I was the officer in charge of the institution when when uh, I was on shift. Um, I have seen it. I, I do recall walking uh, an individual off the property um, who was subsequently convicted and, and got three years um, federal federal time himself. It does happen. Thankfully, it doesn't yeah. happen, you know, that often. But that's always the, you know, that's where sort of the brain goes when you see 287 grand. Uh, you know, that's yeah. not just coming in with a single inmate or with, you know, visitors. I mean, that is an extraordinary amount. And all the different items listed, uh, there's a bigger problem. There, there's definitely yeah. a bigger problem. I mean, the, there's... the weapons, the weapons and the brew, you're always going to have it. They, they make those inside. But all the other stuff... That it's just it's just too much. I mean, you never want to be pointing the finger at anybody, but you also have to be realistic and say, you know what? Sometimes there is, you know, bad eggs there, and we need yeah. we need to be cognizant of that. All right, we continue to talk about smuggling contraband into BC prisons. Two hundred and eighty-seven thousand dollars worth of smuggled items discovered at Maximum Security Kent Institution. My guest is Alan Mullen. He's a former corrections officer. He worked for 10 years at that maximum security jail. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Dave in Coquitlam. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, I, um, so it was about 20 years back now. I worked with my dad, and we were doing some repairs to the um, – at Kent, they have, like, an outdoor courtyard, and there's, like, a giant square that goes around that's concrete. We were doing some repairs. And every day we were getting asked, oh, hey, like, and flashing money. Like, I think at the most, the one day guy flashed us was about $1,000 if we could bring stuff in. Whoa. You mean the prisoners were coming up offering you money? Yeah. Wow. Coming up. And then after a while, like, I always kept saying no, obviously. And uh, somehow, some way, uh, two or three of our extension cords were cut in half. Hmm. How they did it, how that was done, I had no idea. But, yeah, it was every day, different guys, different whatever coming up and just, hey, can you bring in this? Can you bring in that? Can you? Wow. What did they typically want you to bring in? Drugs? Yeah, it was drugs. Yeah, marijuana or whatever we could. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, Dave, thank you for sharing that story. No Al- Alan, does that surprise you? Uh, it surprises me a little bit just because uh, money is is also contraband in inside yeah. the institution, and for for an inmate to have like a thousand dollars in cash, like that's that is a bit crazy to me. I know the exact courtyard he, uh, Dave's talking about there, uh, and that was back when inmates had a little bit more movement. That that certainly wouldn't be happening uh, today at Kent Institution because they don't have that kind of movement, and they certainly couldn't be approaching contractors. But um, yeah, the the fact that they would have cash. Uh, that's one thing you really don't find during these what's called an exceptional search. Generally, currency is not really in the institution. It's these other things that we've been talking about. Yeah, that's amazing. Let's go to Wendy calling from Ladner. Hi, Wendy. Go ahead. Hi, there. Um, I was just wondering about the cell phones. Uh, if they're in prison for, you know, committing murders or whatever, why are they allowed a phone? Like if they need to phone somebody, they could just 
bow and use a rotary phone or something, you know? Alan? Yeah, they're, they're actually not uh, allowed phones at all, Wendy. There is there is phones that they're allowed to use. It's an inmate system. It's all recorded. But that's that's the problem with these smartphones. They're being smuggled in illegally, and it's part of that contraband package. And it's it's the biggest issue for the Correctional Service of Canada across the country, uh, you know, cell phones being smuggled in um, for, for <coughs> obvious reasons. So they're, they're not allowed under any circumstances uh, to have cell phones, and it's a pretty serious infraction uh, in, in the institutional court system as well. Wendy, thank you for the call. I appreciate it a lot. You can understand why, as you described earlier, Alan, why they would potentially want a cell phone inside a prison to be able to coordinate with people on the outside, or maybe you continue to run a, a criminal enterprise from inside your cell. Absolutely, and we've seen that a lot Um you know, with certainly some of the the former um, gang members from the Abbotsford area, I won't mention any names, but I'm sure everybody can put two and two together. They were literally conducting their business from their cell. Uh, you know, yeah. anything from ordering, you know, drug deals to ordering actual hits, if if you can believe yeah. that. So uh, it's not just about the you know when they go out. It's a lot of times it's they're they're conducting their business as if nothing was was wrong, yeah. as if they were on the street. So it's it's a serious issue. Alan, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Pleasure as always, Mike. Let's talk about the record rate of drug overdose deaths in British Columbia now. The death count continuing to rise here in the first seven months of this year. 1,455 drug overdose deaths in the province. That is the highest ever for any seven-month period, we are on our way to another record year of drug overdose fatalities. What about decriminalization of drug possession? That happened six months ago in B.C., 2.5 grams, the new possession limit, the legal possession limit in British Columbia. This was supposed to reduce overdose deaths. We are going in the wrong direction. We've got an awesome guest standing by for you, Tom Wolf, Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. First, have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Kamal Karamali. You'll also hear hear from grieving mom Shireen Schuster. My eldest son, Jordan, he was 25 years old. Shireen Schuster says her son resorted to drugs to deal with his depression. He found that the drugs helped take away the pain. And uh, very sadly, he was given pure fentanyl and he passed away. All right. Can't think of anything more tragic than this than losing a child to these drugs and fentanyl, one of the drugs that has been decriminalized in British Columbia. Let's discuss now with my guest, Tom Wolf. Tom is a recovery advocate. He's with the Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. Tom has had an amazing journey himself through this. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Tom, thank you very much for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it a lot. Hey, Tom, first of all, let's talk a little bit about your personal story, if you don't mind, because you've gone through uh, an amazing recovery process yourself. Can you tell me how, how you turned your life around? Like, what happened to you? Well, I initially got addicted to oxycodone uh, after surgery. I had foot surgery back in early 2015. They gave me oxycodone pills for the pain. I got addicted to them. 
Uh, and instead of trying to stop, I actually went to the street and started purchasing those pills on the street, which you could do in San Francisco in 2015. Nowadays, those pills aren't out there anymore. Everything is fentanyl now. Uh, but I got addicted to that, and then it spiraled into heroin addiction and then eventually fentanyl addiction. And my drug addiction actually landed me into homelessness because my wife kicked me out of the house. She put a restraining order on me because I was getting high around my kids, driving my kids around high on heroin and fentanyl. And, uh, and I was just a danger to them and to myself. So I ended up spending six months on the streets in San Francisco homeless, uh, where I finally got arrested six different times uh, for various criminal acts that I was doing on the street to support my addiction. I went to jail for three months, and then I went to a drug treatment, a six-month inpatient drug treatment program. And that's how I found recovery. And uh, this year, I celebrated five years of, of sobriety. Wow. Wow, I, I salute you. I congratulate you, Tom, on your journey to recovery. That, that's an amazing story. And when you said, like, did you find that's a typical kind of, kind of timeline for people who get addicted to these drugs? If they started off on, like, maybe a prescription drug, they got hooked on that and then looking for stuff on the street? You know, it can. It varies from person to person. I, I think oh. my journey actually happened kind of quickly. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is you see, you watch the demographics of people that are on the street struggling with addiction. You're seeing the demographics trend younger and younger and younger. So you're seeing a lot more younger people now that are in their early 20s that are ending up out on the street. And so you have to wonder, are they starting to use drugs at a really young age and then have that escalate into a full-blown addiction that actually perpetuates their homelessness? Uh, Tom, you're talking to us today from San Francisco, as you pointed out. And w what is the law there in San Francisco right now when it comes to drug drug possession? We have decriminalized drug possession here. Uh, 2.5 grams is the legal possession limit now for heroin, uh, cocaine, crystal meth, ecstasy, and even, even fentanyl. What is the law in San Francisco? Well, technically on the books here, it's still illegal uh, to possess any uh, illegal drug. Uh, but you know, we've taken kind of the softer approach where we've had a de facto decriminalization for about the last seven or eight years. Uh, you know, I, I remember one story in 2018 when I was on the street, I, I was smoking crack. I was standing on the street smoking crack and I felt someone come up behind me and I turned around and it was a cop. And I panicked. And as I panicked, I exhaled and blew all the crack smoke into his face. And instead of getting arrested and going to jail, he just made me drop my pipe and walk away. So it's not like we've been cracking down here in San Francisco. There's been no war on drugs here in San Francisco for years and years and years. Uh, and you kind of see the results. And now, uh, you know, things have gotten so bad that uh, our district attorney and our police department is starting to pivot. And they're actually starting to cite and arrest drug users if they're publicly intoxicated on the street uh, and offering them services, offering them a pathway to treatment uh, upon their arrest. Uh, but they're only holding them for just a couple of days and then letting them, letting them right back out again because there's not enough treatment beds out there to service no. the need of everybody that, that's struggling with addiction. And you kind of see the same thing playing out in Vancouver as well. Oh, yeah. We've got a brutal shortage of treatment uh, beds, treatment programs, recovery programs. I mean, this is kind of the tragic part of it, it, in my opinion, because we have decriminalized drug possession, but at the same time, we did not dramatically ramp up recovery options and treatment programs for people that I think is a, is a critical error. Like, what do you think, though? You're the expert. You tell me, like, what do you think about this, what we're doing here, decriminalizing possession? Well, you know, you have to look at a bunch of different factors. So you hit the nail on the head, first of all, that, you know, decriminalization or safe injection sites 
all of those things in absence of infrastructure to support them. Uh, basically, you're doing all of those things in a vacuum. And it just makes makes the situation worse. And if you look at the overdose death numbers in British Columbia and in Vancouver, and then you look at the amount of like supervised consumption sites that you have across your province uh, and the decriminalization, have the overdose death numbers dropped? No, they haven't. In fact, you just broke records again yeah. uh, with overdose deaths in, in BC. So you have to look at things in aggregate. Is it really reducing overdose deaths as they keep saying over and over and over that it will? No. So what's missing there, what the missing piece to all of this is accountability. So, you know, in recovery, when you're, you're recovering from addiction, one of the things you have to do is you have to hold yourself accountable. That's part of your process in recovery. You have to own the things that you did in your recovery and then try to make amends for them. Uh, that's kind of been taken away uh, from just the overall policy that we've implemented around drugs uh, all up and down the West Coast of North America, really. And it's like a three-legged stool. If you remove one piece, one leg of that stool, the stool falls down. And we have systematically removed accountability from the process. And you kind of see the result. You have thousands of people using on the streets of Vancouver. You have thousands of people using on the streets of, uh, of San Francisco. And, you know, really, British Columbia, unfortunately, kind of has the moniker now of being the epicenter of the overdose crisis in North America, uh, with San Francisco and Philadelphia a close second and third. Speaking of Tom Wolf, Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. Tom is a former homeless uh, drug user who turned his life around through recovery. He's been clean now for several years. Hey, Tom, I want to play you a clip here uh, from Dr. Paxton Bach, St. Paul's Hospital Addictions Doctor here in British Columbia. And this is him, Dr. Bach, speaking to me on an earlier show. And this interview sort of lives in my mind because of the things that he said to me this day about the people who come to him desperate for treatment, desperate for detox facilities, detox programs, and he has to put them on a, a wait list. And, well, well, let's play it, and then I'll get your thoughts. This is Dr. Paxton Bach here on an earlier show. I see patients every day who are asking me if they can get into detox, and I'm putting them on a two- or three- or four-week wait list. That is an eternity. For somebody who's continuing to use drugs every day. Are you aware of people who have died while waiting? Constantly. Constantly. He has heard of people who have died while at, they ask for treatment, Tom, and then they're told you have to wait weeks or months for treatment. They continue to use, pass away from an overdose. I mean, I'm sure you've seen plenty of this yourself. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so th this is the problem. Herein lies the problem is that we want to make all these changes around decriminalization and criminal justice reform and, uh, and you know, safe supply uh, around drugs to make yeah. it so that we can support drug users. But how are we really supporting them if we're not actually providing the next steps, which is the detox and the treatment? And yes, housing is part of that. Uh, but I'll tell you what, um, you know, in Vancouver, Last month, 80% of all the overdose deaths happened inside. So, uh, and in San Francisco, it was 70% of all the overdose deaths happened inside. And most of that was in permanent supportive housing. So just taking someone who's struggling with addiction on the street and putting them in a house without making them access services, because those services are actually voluntary for them, uh, is actually a very dangerous thing to do with uh, with someone who's addicted to fentanyl, because now you've isolated them inside a, what? you know, 100 you know, into a small room. What about, 
What about harm reduction Does it, in principle? There's, there's still a lot of support for the concept of supervised injection sites. There, there's growing support among, among some people for safe supply of drugs. And the argument is that the reason so many people are dying is because of the toxic drug supply of illegal drugs on the street. So the idea is give people um, so-called safer drugs, pharmaceutical grade that have been tested in a lab, and if people are going to use anyway, at least then they don't die from a fentanyl overdose. What is what is wrong with that? So I, I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, I'm just thinking about what happened in the United States in the 1990s and early 2000s with Oxycontin, with pill mills, with the, the pervasive marketing tactics of Purdue Pharma and how they actually went to the the uh, the, the, the drug and, you know, the uh, the Food and Drug Administration and actually told them that Oxycontin isn't isn't addictive. Mm-hmm. And then they shipped millions and millions of pills out into pharmacies and into doctor's offices and got 20 million people addicted to Oxycontin through a safe supply, a pristine safe supply of opioids. That is what began this entire crisis to begin with. And I just want to add on to that, if I could. There was a, a study that was done in 2016 at McGill University in Montreal uh, mm-hmm. about the effectiveness of uh, safe injection sites throughout British Columbia. And uh, in the results, I'll just read this last sentence from the results of this. It says, however, there were no changes to trends in monthly hospitalization or mortality rates. Extensive sensitivity analysis found these results persisted. That means that people are dying anyway. And that's because we have removed the intervention piece from it. And that's, that's really the root of it. Yeah, I'm very pleased. I've got a few more minutes here with Tom Wolf, Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. Tom is a former homeless addict who turned his life around. He now advocates for recovery programs for people who are using. Tom, let me just, in the few minutes we've got left here, you told this story earlier about uh, how you got into recovery and it was after, it was after you got arrested, right? Like, w- would right. you say that 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 was actually a turning point in, in your life? It was absolutely a turning point in my life. And it didn't just, just take one arrest. I was arrested six times in the three-month period. And yeah. I kept getting let out on my own recognizance every time, right back into homelessness. It wasn't until the sixth arrest that they said, wow, you've, you've got too many cases, so we have to hold you here in jail for a few months. And that's where I actually sobered up. And I had, a, had an opportunity to, to think and kind of assess my life and what had happened to me. And uh, and at that point, I kind of realized that, wow, I'm, I'm really you know looking for help, looking for an opportunity. And I was presented to go uh, to an, with an opportunity to go to a rehab at the Salvation Army here in San Francisco. It was the only rehab that would take me because it was free. And I went there for six months and it really turned my life around because I was able to lay a foundation and kind of make a plan on how to take the next step in my life. And uh, that's what's needed for so many people out there on the street. There's just a lot of people that have given up hope. So recovery actually restores that hope and gives human beings purpose. And that's what people need. They need a purpose in life. And if you're just living in a tent and smoking fentanyl all day, that that's you've lost your purpose at that point and you lose hope. And hey, Tom, we, we can we, keep people. Yep. Tom, we just have two minutes here. Yeah. What there is a big debate here in British Columbia about the concept of involuntary secure care. I mean, everyone sees the drug addiction, the homelessness, the, the untreated mental illness on our streets, just like it's in very similar situation in San Francisco. 
do you think people should be, even if they don't want to go into treatment, um, should there be some sort of involuntary treatment for people? Your thoughts? If there's a subset of people on the street that require intervention, they just do. I was one of those people. And so the answer is, is that if they're breaking the law in order to support their addiction, i.e. shoplifting or breaking into cars or robbing somebody, then yes, uh, mandated treatment is definitely an option for those people. Uh, that's just a great way so that they don't have to go to jail. They can actually go somewhere and access help. And I think if we brought that back, brought drug courts back into the picture, you would actually see some positive results. Right. And just in the minute we have left, some of the solutions that you're outlining here today seem to be going against the the common perception here of our, of our leaders who are, we continue to go with more harm reduction measures like decriminalization, like safe supply of drugs. Why, like, do you sort of see a, a, at some point a turning point where, where maybe people, will, officials will say, you know, this is not working. We've got to do something else here. We've got 30 seconds here, Tom. Yeah, it's already happening. You're already seeing the turning point happening, uh, and it's driven by overdose deaths. So, yeah. you know, we can do all the harm reduction measures in the world, but if overdose deaths don't decline, that's the data that everybody looks at. So if overdose deaths aren't going down, that means that maybe what we're doing isn't actually working, and it's time to expand the solution space and bring in some other options for people. Tom, I congratulate you on your recovery, and I hope that continues to go forward for you, and thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.